You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, Producers Perspective podcast listeners. We are back. I'm going to tell you a little dirty secret of the podcasting business is that these podcasts are recorded sometimes well in advance of the day I release them. I know you are all shocked. Uh, and this podcast with my very special guest, who I'll introduce in a second, is being recorded just a few days after one of the biggest entertainment events of the year, the Academy Awards, 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 which is very fitting for my guest today because he's actually an Academy Award-nominated filmmaker. His name is Richard LeGravenade. Welcome, Richard. Thank you, Ken. Pleasure. Richard is a screenwriter and a film director. He was nominated for an Oscar for the screenplay to The Fisher King, which is one of my favorite movies. Thanks. <laughs> uh, and I know someone that wants to make it into a musical, I think. So, but we'll get to that. Uh, also written the screenplays to some other little-known films like, oh, I don't know, Bridges in Madison County, which was a musical, Water for Element Elephants, which I hear they're making into a musical. Oh, they are? <laughs> he doesn't even know. Uh, Beautiful Creatures, which he also directed. And most recently, he was the director and screenwriter and champion with a capital C for the film The Last Five Years, the Jason Robert Brown musical starring Jeremy Jordan and Anna Kendrick. Now, you all know why he's here. Here is a Hollywood power writer that is building the bridge to Broadway. But what I, and that's what I love about him, that's what I really wanted you to hear from him and his very unique perspective on both sides of the nation. So, Richard, tell me, you're from Brooklyn, New York, true? Yes, I am. You went to the Tisch School of the Arts. Yep, for the Experimental Theater Wing. Uh, my alma mater, Tisch, as well. Yeah. So how did this acting major from Brooklyn, New York, <laughs> end up on the other side of the country writing screenplays? Because okay. theater was a big thing. Well, first, let me say, um, I've never lived on the other side of the country. So I, I, I've never lived in Los Angeles. So um, I don't know why uh, everyone in New York thinks I'm, I'm a Hollywood screenwriter, but I guess because that's where the business is and that's where... Um, the movies are made, but no, I, I, uh, I consider myself a New Yorker. I've lived here all my life. And, um, what happened was, uh, I was, a, a, a theater actor slash writer. And, and, uh, I was part of a comedy act. I had done experimental theater. I was a chorus boy in summer stock. I did all that kind of stuff. And, um, I wrote a one act play for my partner and I, a comedy act I had that we did at the Lion on 42nd Street. And it happened to be uh, the first date I asked my uh, soon-to-be wife on. Um, and when she saw it, she says, wow, you, you're, you're a really incredible writer. And I went, oh, really? I don't know, because you know, I really want to be an actor and blah, blah, blah. And she says, no, 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 you really should stick with the writing. And then, you know, a long time we dated and then ultimately married. And um, I got a job uh, assisting to a screenwriter, a wonderful writer named Neil Levy, uh, who had sold an idea, a movie idea, and I knew nothing about uh, film. Uh, I said that I loved it. I was obsessive about movies, um, but I didn't know how to write them. So I, I sort of apprenticed him, and that movie uh, took about three years to get made, and, and in the process, 
Uh, it was very frustrating not working with him, but working with this real kind of uh, uh, nightmare of a producer named Aaron Russo, uh, who used to be Bette Midler's manager, and, and uh, I think the, the rose was sort of based on him and her. Um, anyway, during that period, I had just gotten married. I wanted my life to start. I was frustrated, so my I, I was going to write a screenplay on spec, which means for free, that I would then hand out to try and get a job. And uh, this was on the encouragement of my wife, who was supporting us at the time. And that screenplay turned out to be The Fisher King. And when I sold it um, in, in uh, August, September of 1988, um, I've been working ever since. Uh, so I didn't have to move out there because they knew where I was. And when they need me, they fly me out there. Um, but uh, that screenplay got me, uh, got everything started. And you had never written a screenplay before? Not by myself. That was the first screenplay I had written on my own. The other screenplay, I sort of apprenticed, and Neil Levy taught me how to write a screenplay. Um, but he hired me because he loved my knack for dialogue, because he had seen my comedy act, and I wrote skit comedy, so it was all based on dialogue. So... Starting out as a playwright and then becoming a screenwriter, tell me a little bit about the differences, if there are any, between writing and tackling the two. Did I'm still learning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still learning because, uh, um, you know, my my uh, tendency is to write dialogue. I love I love I love actors. I love watching actors give great performances. It's why part of the reason I love movies. Um, learning the language of cinema, the language of a camera, is is uh, something that I'm still. I'm still learning, um, but I've, I've had some great masters uh, to, to learn from. Uh, so I consider myself in the, my DNA primarily a writer. Um, and uh, um, that, you know, writing for film, uh, this movie, last five years, was for me, at this stage of the game, one of the first times I felt as a director that I designed a movie and that the screenplay, because it was Jason's material, uh, the screenplay was primarily how I was going to shoot it and how I was going to tie things together and, and what the production would look like and uh, how uh, their costumes would tell time and, and what their backstories would be because I had both characters singing to each other. And, and it was really a challenge and an opportunity for me to write in the language of camera. Because I wasn't, I didn't have to write dialogue except for little bits here and there. This was all, you know, Jason's material, and I had more confidence in his material than I've ever had in my own. So it was easy. To do. <laughs> oh, that's hysterical. Uh, you've talked about you, you've worked with some masters mm -hmm. before. Certainly, you've worked with some incredible directors. Yes, yes. Well, the last, I mean, um, um, you know, uh, I wrote uh, Behind the Candelabra, and that was uh, Soderbergh. And Soderbergh's been a, a, you know, a tremendous influence. And, uh, and Terry Gilliam and, uh, um, Rob Redford was a wonderful, uh, director. Francis Lawrence. I've, I've had a lot of great, uh, Clint Eastwood, who I didn't, I've worked very briefly with, but even in that brief time, I've, I learned quite a bit. Um, so it's, it's, uh, I've had, I've been lucky. And being a director, let's talk, so we talk about the difference between a writer for screenplays and for theater. What about directing for the stage versus directing for film? Obviously the camera involved, but how involved are, I sometimes, I remember talking to Sam Mendes about, uh, when he was doing Gypsy, about mm -hmm. American Beauty and hearing so much the director and the technical aspect of the, the film and the camera mm -hmm. versus how much time they get to spend with the actors. Mm -hmm. What kind of director are you? What's I um, I love uh, working with actors. That's my favorite part. Um, this movie, last five years, I got to do both because it was such a small production, and I had the best relationship I ever had with a cinematographer called Stephen Meisler, and so we were a real partnership. And so 
I got to uh, be on the technical side of it, uh, I felt much more comfortable and had more fun than I ever had before. Uh, but working with the actors is, is, is my favorite part. In film directing, there's an old adage that says 80% of movie directing is casting. Uh, so you do a lot of that work in the casting, and then you sort of step out of the way. Um, and then when they need any kind of guidance or there are questions or you know new things come up and new ideas, I, I encourage collaboration. Um, I love when actors uh, are excited and want to you know create something with me. Um, and they both came up with wonderful ideas. Um, I always wait until I get the take that I know I wanted, a click, I, I feel. And then after that, I go up to the actor and say, I have it, now I want you to do it for yourself. Just throw everything away and do whatever you want. And I'll keep the camera rolling until, you know, you want to say stop. Because I like them to have their own click as well. And oftentimes, those takes are, are wonderful, a little more spontaneous. You don't see all the homework, you know. Um, but I, I love working with actors. I respect what? them. I wonder what a theater director would say the percentage of their work is casting versus if film is 80%. I, I, I haven't had a director on the podcast yet, so I'll have to, I'll have to, to ask the same question. <laughs> they say that. John Huston said that about film because, you know, as a director, you're dealing with so many technical aspects that, they, that um, the thing about film in the beginning I didn't like is that the human element, which are the actors and the performances, uh, are rushed and the, and are in, in, because the lighting and the technical aspects, that's what you wait around for. That's where all the, uh, the camera the angles and all the time gets sucked up by that. So when the actors have to come to do their thing, sometimes, not often, but sometimes they're not given their due. They have to rush through, you know, and I, I hate that. So I try and balance it out so that the actors are taken care of and can give, you know, good performances. And, Let's talk about producers in Hollywood versus producers on Broadway. Certainly, you you've known both. You've worked with both. I've never really worked with um, New York producers. Uh, I mean, I mean theater producers. I don't. I don't. I know them uh, as friends, but I don't. I've never worked with them. Um, so I, I don't know that I can, I can compare. And what's the relationship like in in Hollywood with a producer? How are they as hands on as they as? There are all kinds of producers. That's the thing. It's a it's a it's an interesting term. Uh, some producers are great in development creatively. Some producers are great at the playing the uh, uh, the sort of three card Monty game of of how to get a movie through a system and dealing with uh, studios. Uh, some uh, producers uh, come up with ideas and buy books and then hire writers and they have their own vision about what they want to do. Uh, some uh, producers find original material and then just encourage you. To uh, you know, they believe in you. They're all all different kinds, you know. Um, and then there are some who just raise money, and some who just manage the money. They're producers are wide term. So let's talk about the last five years mm -hmm. specifically. What what drew you to it, or when did you first see it or hear about it? I never saw the actual uh, the original production. Um, my friend uh, Todd Graff, who uh, wrote and directed a movie called Camp about uh, Sage or Manor. Uh, is, a, is a good friend. And um, I would say about 2004, 2005, he gave me the soundtrack because I kept hearing about it and I didn't know it. And um, I just fell in love with the score. I, I love the score. It's so honest and um, insightful and rich and heartbreaking and funny. And, and it became one of my top ten favorite scores. And I just would listen to it over and over and over in between doing work, in between writing uh and um, it became sort of a reward for me to sort of fantasize about making this into a little movie uh, outside of the system. And uh, slowly but surely, uh, step by step, it became a reality. 
And did you know Jason? How, what was no. that first meeting like when you said, I want to make this into a movie? Well, it, it all started with, uh, I, was, I was auditioning, uh, I was holding auditions for a, mo- uh, for a film uh, in 2006, I believe, uh, or, and uh, Sherry Renee Scott came in. And the first thing I said, I just gushed over her about the last five years and said to her, I've always had this little fantasy about making a little movie. And so she introduced me to her uh, then-husband, Kurt Deutsch. Uh, they have a company called Shikaboom Records. And, um, and, uh, Kurt had had a similar idea. I did not know that, but he had had an idea. And I said, I, I'd like to do this. And then he introduced me to Jason. And, uh, for a few years there, it was just the three of us. And Jason and I, um, never believed it was actually going to happen. And Jason was living in LA at the time. So anytime I went out to LA for work, I would always set up a lunch or something with him. And we'd just have fun. We would just talk about the script. I, I, I write it, you know, uh, in my spare time and, uh, come up with ideas. And then he'd, you know, say yes to this, no to that, try that. That's something different. He was wonderful to work with. He was just one of the funniest, smartest men. And, um, this went on for a few years and Kurt's determination to, you know, make it happen, uh, you know, he kept, on me, no matter what else I was uh, focused on, and um, it started to become a reality. And then um, uh, a friend of mine, Janet Brenner, uh, um, who's a producer, uh, a theater, more in theater, and uh, and now in film, uh, I brought her in to help, and she brought in Lauren Versal, who is a an independent film producer who knows how that system works, because I had never done independent film before. And the three of them became my producing team, and they raised the money. And somewhere along the way, before Pitch Perfect came out, uh, Anna Kendrick, I met with Anna, who was my first choice, and uh, she attached herself to the movie, um, which was lucky, because Pitch Perfect hadn't come out yet. I wanted her because she's Anna Kendrick, and because I had I loved camp, I just thought she was perfect. And uh, she loved her favorite musical is Parade. So she knew Jason from Parade, and one thing led to another, and she read the script and heard the score, and thankfully uh, attached herself to it, and we were able to raise money. How, what was the budget? I don't know if I'm allowed to say. It's in the low, low, low single digits. Yeah, amazing. That's what the, I was actually asked to invest in the original off-Broadway production oh. of the last five years, which <laughs> I passed on. Um, and the funny thing is I've known Jason for a year. Quick story is that he was my vocal coach when I was in college at Tisch. No, really? I, the story goes that I was literally my second day of class singing Why God Why from Miss Saigon. <laughs> and I heard something from the accompaniment that I'd never heard before, an improvised something. And I was singing and I turned and looked and saw this moppy-haired kid banging away at the piano. And I remember... That was I can think back and go. That was the first time I ever heard genius coming from a, mm. from a person. Yeah. And I approached him after class and I said I would love to do something with you. And he was my vocal coach for a cool. years. That's so, really cool. Uh, yeah, I was involved very very early on with a lot of his stuff and, and saw it. So certainly I could see why the score yeah. would uh, attract. We just you. saw a parade uh, the other night at Avery Fisher. It was unbelievable. I was the yeah unbelievable. I was the company manager for the workshop of that uh, <laughs> when it went to Toronto and yeah. being around it was just amazing. But and the score, his music, there's something that gets yeah. you so in, inside your heart. Mm-hmm. But when I look to take a book or a movie and turn it into the theater, one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is. Why the theater? What about this art form is a great way to tell this story? So here's something that was a very personal story to Jason and done in a very theatrical way to mm-hmm. people telling their story. In monologues to the audience, not to each other. And, and in reverse time. time zones, right. So you looked at this and heard this, and obviously we're attracted to the score, but what, 
what was it about? I have a a different way that can only be done on film. What was the, the well? Because I hadn't narration? seen it on stage, um, I listened to the score, and my imagination went into uh, seeing the songs as as playable scenes, as them singing to each other when when that was essay. That's just how my imagination went. Then I found out that it was a monologue uh, piece. And then years later, I started the Pasadena Playhouse for the first time. And um, I just couldn't help seeing it and being able to make it work. Look, it, 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 I wasn't I wasn't 100% sure. And I'm sure, and I'm, you know, I'm sure I know there are many people out there that um, for whom it doesn't work. Uh, but uh, I... Um, I wanted to see something I hadn't seen on film before. I'm at a point and was at a point in my career where um, you just get so tired. I got tired of worrying about box office and trying to please everybody and trying to write something that, that appeals to a mass general public and, and, and not feeling like you're doing anything that you really love and that you really care about. And um, that's more personal. And even though I did not write this, this is a very personal material to me. I, I relate to it a great deal. And uh, Jason has that power with his work. Um, and so I wanted to do it for me and uh, creatively. It's just something that I needed to feed myself. And I knew uh, that my theater tribe, my musical theater tribe, because uh, my daughter is also a musical theater nut, and I know a lot of her, that generation through her, um, that they'd be interested. So if I could do this on a very, very small budget, I shot it in 21 days, that, that it would be a responsible, um, personal project. You know, uh, I wouldn't be, um, wasting a lot of money, uh, but I would do it the way I wanted to do it without interference. I wanted to keep it in Jason's form. I didn't want to impose a screenplay on it because I felt that if we did it through a Hollywood studio, that's what they would have asked for. And um, it was the best time I ever had creatively, and I needed it. I needed to do that, something that I hadn't seen before. It was a risk, and I needed to take it. Since the Chicago Revolution, we've seen a number of... Was Chicago a revolution? I, I, everyone's, I've read that before. It was, that was because it was so successful... Because it was so successful and because all of a sudden we thought, oh, it can be done again. It can again. be done, yes, I see. Because we all knew here in the industry there were yeah. tons of musicals that were made into movies in the golden age and then it just stopped. It just it stopped, like yeah. Hollywood hated us for a while. We can't touch musicals. I, I right. kind of think of the way American Idol says, you sound too Broadway. I feel like Hollywood right. had that appeal. Because it, it came the other way. Suddenly, uh, when Lion King uh, came here, suddenly... Hollywood was realizing that their properties could be turned into stage productions, so I know it was going that way. Right. Um, but I guess Chicago, I mean, I love Chicago. Um, I saw the original uh, also. Um, so I was, and I love Bill Condon's work and, and Rob Marshall. Um, but I didn't realize that that was kind of a watershed, because I guess it was. Yeah, we've seen obviously a number since then, some very, very good and some not so good. Yeah. Uh, did you study all those as you were? No, I mean, I watched them just because I watched, just because I love musicals. I mean, I, I they're, you know, osmosis as a kid, I mean, I've watched every musical that's been ever been made. So, you know, things will come out that I don't even mean to come out. I mean, when Jeremy is singing, you know, moving too fast, he's on a water taxi, I'm going, oh, it's Funny Girl. And I didn't, even mean, I didn't even mean that to happen. It just kind of happened because we had to change. You know, I originally had him on a bicycle going across the Brooklyn Bridge where we couldn't afford a helicopter. Um, so I had to change it. So it's just in my blood uh, uh, seeing every musical, you know, over and over and over. 
And do you think and have a desire to do more? Oh, absolutely. Yeah? Yeah, Anything. absolutely. What, what's a, what's a well, the last thing I just did, um, I, I rewrote. Uh, Julian Fellows did the first draft, and uh, he's a brilliant writer from Downton Abbey. Uh, I just rewrote the Gypsy for Streisand, um, and that was a ball. That was such a great... That was a, like a dream come true, working with her on that musical. You know, it just was fantastic. Um, and I hope that that gets made. They're looking for a director on it, because um, that would be, uh, her singing that score would be historic. Um, but we had such a, but it was such a great time. And also, you know, working with Arthur Lawrence's book, it was just, it's such a great book. He did, you know, you, you have to go back to it. You have to use that as your core in that you can't stray too far from that. Um, so that was that. Um, I'm doing a musical, uh, I'm writing one for the stage that I'm, uh, almost finished with the first draft on. And, um, um, that Casey Nicolau and I are, are, are excited about. So I'm getting closer and closer to, to doing, uh, theater. More film musicals? Yeah, sure. There'd have to be something, uh, something cool that I wanted to do. But, you know, I, I'm a little worried about working in a studio system where that this, having this independence and doing it meant, meant a lot. Um, I wonder if the, if it could work the other way. I don't, I don't know. For me personally, only, only me personally. Now, so you, you're starting to get more into theater and writing more theater, and you have a daughter, and she's a musical theater nut. Mm-hmm. If your daughter came to you and said one day, Dad, uh, I have a choice. I could have a successful career in Hollywood or a successful career on Broadway. Which one would you want her to choose? Oh, boy. You know, it's, it, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't presume to, to tell her. Um, it really is. you got to follow where your heart goes. Um, boy, that sounds so corny. Uh, it's not just, just where your heart goes, but where your personality goes because you need a certain kind of skin for both, you know, um, you know, I was just in San Francisco and, uh, I was interviewed by the guy who runs ACT out there and there's a great group of actors out there, fat, really fine actors who chose to stay in San Francisco and not make the move to New York. Uh, and they work all the time and because they love the work, you know, there, there is a, there is a life to be had as an actor or an actress, uh, where you can work steady and not necessarily, you know, win an Oscar or become a famous person, but you can have a wonderful life if you love the work. It's got to, you got to love the work. You can't want it for any other, any other reason. Um, success is a byproduct, you know. Such great advice. I tell people that all the time. You but it's really be, true. Yeah, you want to be an actor? You can be an actor anywhere. Being a Broadway actor doesn't just mean you're Yeah, you can be an actor anyway. Tennessee Williams had a great quote that I'm not going to, say right, but it was something along the lines of success is like um, uh, a, sh- a shy mouse. If you, uh, if you stare at it, 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 uh, it won't come out. You know, you have to not pay attention to it, you know, uh, for it to come out. Uh, <clears throat> and when you were obviously growing up in New York, you saw a lot of Broadway shows, obviously. Well, I was a big, uh, the first thing was movies. I, I was a movie nut when I was a kid, mostly. And then when I was 12, my parents took me to see Follies. That was my first Broadway musical. And um, I flipped out. Uh, um, I remember having to explain the second act to my mother. Uh, <laughs> like, no, he didn't forget the lyrics. He's having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> like, like, oh, okay, I understand now. Um, uh, and then I used to sneak into the city uh, to uh, see plays and to walk up and down the theater district in those days, when you're 13, 14, you hop on the train and you know, could do all of that. Um, so New York for me was always the dream. Uh, Hollywood was never, I never had any desire for Hollywood. This being in New York was getting across the river was, was my dream. 
Um, so yeah, theater is it was I don't know. Movies just seem so um, impossible for a kid from Brooklyn whose father's a cab driver knows nobody. How do I, how does that work? So I but theater felt real, and and I remember being at ETW working with Ann Bogart and a group of us outcasts. And feeling, I never felt more creative in my life. That, that was the first time I experienced what it was like to be creative. And it was such a high. And how do you think, obviously, since you've lived here and you've seen Broadway, even though you haven't been working on it for the past couple decades, uh-huh. how, how has it changed or how do you think it's changed? <clears throat> well, um, I don't think I'm, I'm uh, saying anything new. It's gotten a little more uh, top-heavy in terms of needing names. And stars, uh, you know, to to attract. Um, I I wish there was a a, a, a more of an off Broadway. Um, you, when you when I when I was a kid, you know, there there were plays that were playwrights were allowed to sort of have their failures and to have their their medium sized hits so that they can have their you know bigger. Now you, you sort of have to come out of the gate, you know, having a masterpiece or you you know you fail. And that's the sad thing about New York. And you have to go to regional theater, I guess, to develop your talent and your skills a bit more. Because here, it's so um, the stakes are so high. You know, the money is is so the rentals and all that stuff. So it's constricted it a little bit in terms of the kinds of uh, talent that we can draw here uh, to bring new kind of material. Um, there's nothing wrong with ha- having you know name actors as long as they're good actors. You know, to come and, and do stuff. But there's New York, Sidney Lumet once said to me, the reason he always, one of the reasons he always shot in New York is because the wealth of talent here is just constant. There are always, there's always new, always coming out. And, um, I am, I am proud of the New York actor scene. There's really amazing actors here. Um. So if there was a son of a cab driver listening to this podcast right now that said he wanted to be a writer someday (laughs) on Broadway or or in Hollywood, what kind of advice would you have? Right. You know, you have to, I, I think what happened for me was, you know, I, it was that thing of, uh, work, um, and, uh, pre- preparation meeting opportunity. You know, I had, a, I worked on a screenplay on and off for like two years and, um, the writer strike happened and I couldn't sell it. And when the writer strike was over, suddenly everybody was reading scripts and the scripts they were reading were surprisingly more for the marketplace. And this original script kind of caught their eye because it was something they hadn't expected. Today, I would have never been able to pitch or sell that script. It was just about timing, I think. Where did that idea come from? Um, it was the 80s, which for me was a really ugly decade. <laughs> um, and, and, a t- and for many reasons, uh, you know, um, especially the early part, the early half of the 80s was really tough. And um, I found the time that we were living in, I just felt it was a real narcissistic, cruel, there was a cruelty in the air and, and a real narcissism. Um, and I wanted to write something about that. Um, so all I had was the idea of a narcissistic man who by the end of the story um, does a selfless act. And that really was the whole spine of it. And then it just took me about three or four drafts with completely different stories to find out how to tell it. <laughs> and uh, do you think it'd make a good musical? Well, um, I have worked with a couple of people who wanted to. You know, um, I, I hesitate because um, 
there's a the reason one of the reasons I think that it's so great is because Terry Gilliam directed it, and he directed it away from sentimentality. And the problem with putting music to that or certain kind of music is that it could make the story the story could easily slip into being very corny and sentimental. So it's a it's a it's a it would it would take a really specific composer lyricist team. Yeah. You are now writing for the theater. Do you think you will direct for the theater? I would love as well? to direct for the theater as well, yeah, absolutely. Your own work? Will you do your own work? I, I would love to do um Someone else's, or a, 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 I'm looking right now. I'm looking for revivals, uh, but of plays that aren't usually done. I, I get the feeling, you know, they, they always revive the same plays. You know, it's like the heiress and Kanhatan Roof, and you know, and uh, really, and I, there's got to be other stuff out there. And um, there's got to be, I'm, there's got to be gold out there that hasn't been mined, and that's what I'm looking for. And if you've read uh, John Lahr's book, that uh, the Tennessee Williams bio is unbelievable. It's one of the greatest books I ever read about a writer. And there's about 20 years of of Tennessee Williams plays that were, you know, completely trashed by writers, uh, by critics, uh, for many reasons. But you never know. There might be one thing in there that that could be revived. That the time is now. Um, I mean, I'm even going back to the 30s. I just want to do something. I don't want to direct my own play. I would like to have a great director to learn from, and I think you need an editor and you need an outsider. But I would love to direct a, a play that's already written. It's interesting. I think in film, it's more common to see a writer-director combo. You do that a lot. Now, ever since the mid-'90s, yeah, that's been the scene. But I didn't start that way. I really just loved being a writer. I never had any intention of directing. It became a necessity after a while because uh, we're at the bottom of the food chain now more than ever. And um, we have no power. Uh, if you write an original and the studio buys it, they own the copyright. They can do anything they want with it. Um, if you have an ad- if you do an adaptation, they can do anything they want with it. Hire any director, rewrite the script as they do often. So um, you have no control. So and they don't really respect you as much as they do a director because a director, when they say yes, a movie can happen. A writer just creates the thing. <laughs> um, and then, of course, you know, everybody's second job is writing. So everybody gives you notes from everybody can tell you. No one tells producers or executives how to be executives, but they, they feel the need to tell us how to write. So it's a whole uh, hierarchy that's difficult. It's just difficult. It's a massive difference in how the, the two industries treat their writers. That in, massive, yeah. yeah. Uh, in theater, uh, the writer is, is um, and, and in television, uh, is more the lead, is more in control of, of their work. I, I don't know why Hollywood, the film industry doesn't respect us to do our job correctly or, or they don't trust us. I don't, I don't know why. Um, if we've proven ourselves, even after so many years, they still insist on telling us how to, uh, how to do what we do. So I'm sure there's been at least one point in your career where you sat back in a dark screening room and watched one of your films and been like, that is not what I wanted up there. Oh yeah. How does that, how does that feel? It's a heartbreaker for me personally. It, it, it breaks my heart because I I I really uh, fall in love with what I'm what I'm working on, uh, and I've done mostly adaptations uh, for uh, Hollywood, and uh, I only pick them because I, I fall in love with the material and I have some personal connection to them. So it hurts. It hurts. Is there a specific example of one that really disappointed you? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. More than one. We'll leave it at that. And what do you have a favorite of all the properties you've worked on? 
today? All, all the Behind the candelabra, I'm, I'm very, very proud of that one. Um, and I love the way it turned out. And, and, uh, Matt and Michael, uh, not just being, they weren't just fantastic actors who did an incredible job, but for the four years that we were trying to set up the script, because I wrote it in 2008 for Stephen, um, and no studio wanted it because they said it was too gay. Um, all those years, uh, Michael and Matt would publicly say that they were doing the movie. And um, that kind of uh, loyalty, uh, they're, just, they're just wonderful, wonderful guys. It's, it's confidence and strength like that from actors that change. Oh, my God, you never get that kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. The world. Oh, yeah. That movie yeah. was helping to do. So, yeah. Okay, one last question. Uh, I want you to imagine that you're granted one wish. Your fairy godmother comes down and says, I'm going to give you one wish. Oh, it's dangerous. Yes, just one, though. And you can change just one thing about Broadway or Hollywood. I'll give you both. I only give everyone else Broadway. But the city work on both sides. You can change one thing, something that keeps you up at night, that frustrates you, whatever it is. Now, you can also think about this in terms of as a theater goer, because you mm -hmm. see lots of shows mm -hmm. here. But you can only change one, and with the snap of a finger, that fairy godmother will change it overnight. What would that one thing be? <sighs> Create a viable off Broadway. Um, community where there are theaters, uh, where uh, playwrights can do their work, and 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 there there's a way to be profitable. Where rents are um, uh, easy to manage, uh, where we can maybe uh, have a, a company. You know, New York would be great if we had a, a theater company here um, in one of them. Um, just a way to, to to broaden our theatrical uh, uh, spectrum. Uh, away from the big budget um, blockbusters and star-driven stuff that Broadway has, which is wonderful, but it's it's limiting, and uh, it'd be great to to have a, an an off-Broadway community again. I remember being a kid and, uh, and even a teenager and looking at the ABCs, and sometimes the off-Broadway ABCs were larger than the Broadway ones, and it's gone. And I don't understand why people try to explain it to me because you can't make money off Broadway and the rents and the thing and the that, but I don't understand with this city. And the, and the theater lovers that we have here, why we can't. You know, there's the Atlantic and there's, there are some places. I love St. Anne's Warehouse. Um, we need more places like that to me. If this podcast were taped in front of a live studio audience, they just would have gone nuts at oh, that yeah? idea. <laughs> because I think everyone knows that what this, the real art of the theater that's missing is the viable off-Broadway community. And I think, and New York, of all the cities, we, we really should make an effort to try and make that happen. Yeah, because I get afraid that we there are a lot of kids of taxi drivers mm -hmm. out there that want to write for the theater, mm -hmm. that are great writers, yeah. that get sucked up by Hollywood because there's nowhere here for them to write. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of them and us are going to TV, um, which is great, has become a great medium, um, uh, but there's nothing like the theater. And that's why we're very thankful you're coming home to us and also building this bridge. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Everyone out there, go see the last five years. Remember, supporting movie musicals means more of them, which is great for everyone. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast at theproducersperspective.com. we got some great guests coming up. Thank you again, Richard. Thank you, Ken. We'll see you all next time.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.